All right. Let's get into the word this morning in the New Testament book of Galatians as we continue our series that we've called Homeschooled. I don't always know how close of an attention you all uh, pay to our, our sermon series, their titles and topics and these types of things. But if you've been paying attention and you've been thinking through the last few weeks, the home aspect of what we've been talking about has been pretty clear. All the metaphors that Paul has used for our salvation and this community we call the church have been family metaphors. They've been household metaphors. But it's here where we start to emphasize the schooled part, okay? It's here where we start to get into the reality that if you've been adopted into God's family, or if you've been, to use the words of the Gospel of John, born again in Jesus Christ, what does it look like to grow up? What does it look like to mature? What does it look like to, um, you know, become a uh, more and more, in a passing way, um, a son or a daughter of God who operates in and lives out their lives in his household. Now, let's recognize a few things before we even open our passage this morning. First, education, like every other communal facet of human life, implies, requires an authority structure. Okay. Even if you will eventually go on to write the dissertation that disproves the great theories of your educators. You first have to surrender and submit to their education. If you're going to be the student, you have to entrust yourself to the teacher. That's always the case. And this is true not just in the maths and sciences, but in the arts. Every great groundbreaking artist who has birthed a new movement has been classically trained prior. This is just the nature of education, and it's worth pointing that out, that out because we're so anti-authoritarian. We're so against authority structures. We're so independent. But the truth is, to need to know is to be vulnerable. And that vulnerability requires entrusting yourself to those who already know who can lead the way. Let me put it in another way. One of the ways that Jesus talks about a relationship with him is the relationship of discipleship, and that includes the idea of following. But following is a vulnerable position, is it not? It means deferring your independent choice of where to go and leaving that in the hands of another. And one of the scariest things about leadership is the leader you follow determines where you go. You will end up where your leaders go. Now let me just add one more little thing here. I believe, personally, and I could argue this at great length, that it is impossible to live your life apart from authority. That authority is built into what it means to be in community, to make decisions together, and if you choose to be the independent thinker, to dislodge yourself from all authorities and institutions, you will not remove that mechanism from your life. You will merely push it into the shadows. You will now be educated by, you know, angel fire websites. 
and anonymous blogs and people you've never met, and you will take their word as authority as you testify that you have, you know, studied up yourself. Okay, and so the structure that I'm laying out here is vulnerable, but it's also necessary and it's also good, okay? But it's that vulnerability that we want to focus on this morning. The question is this. If you are to grow up in God's household, it must be with help. You must have guides, teachers, older brothers and sisters, even, Paul would say, mothers and fathers in the faith. But what if you took a three-year-old and sent them to the parent store and said, pick your parents? Why don't we do things like that? Why don't we let kids determine who should raise them and instruct them? Because it's part of the vulnerability of being a kid that they're ill-equipped to pick their teachers. Okay. That's the problem that the Galatians are facing. They have two possible paths represented by two possible examples or two sets of leaders, or two different teachings which, surprise, surprise, come from two different teachers. And because of that, they're at a crossroads. And so what happens, really interestingly, at this point in Galatians, is Paul steps out of the scriptures, he steps out of the rational and logical argument that he's been laying out, and he begins to speak about his relationship with the Galatians. The appeal that we're going to read in just a minute is impassioned. It is emotional. It is not uh, left-brained, reasonable, and rational. It is very human. In fact, it is tender. And as you will notice as we read, it's because it comes down to this place. The question is, if we were to mature, what type of people should we entrust ourselves to? If we seek to follow Jesus, who should we follow as they follow Christ? To bother, borrow Paul's words from 1 Corinthians. So let's read the passage together and then we'll reflect. Let's pick up in chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing that you felt? For I testify that you, if possible, would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. 
Let's pray. Father, we just ask for your help this morning. We pray that you would help us to see who you are, who we are, all in the light of your word. We pray that you would instruct us this morning. We ask that you would lead us and that you would help us to follow rightly those who you call us to follow and recognize those who would lead us astray. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The key to understanding what we're reading here is to notice first what happens in verses 8, 9, and 10. To some degree, it's, it's somewhat review. In fact, we covered verses 8 and 9 last week. Paul looks at the history of the Galatians church as two seasons or two phases. Formerly, you were this way, but now, okay? And the distinction between those two is that you were enslaved to those things that are not God. You worshipped idols that could not satisfy or save you because they were not real. But now you've come to know God, he says, or rather be known by God. Or to grab the metaphor from last week, you have been adopted into God's family. You're no longer slaves, but sons and daughters of God. Okay. Why does he bring that up right here? What does he say next? He says in um, verse 9, But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? What's his concern here? If I can use the metaphor of maturity, it's regression. His concern is that they would go backwards and not forwards. Now, that's not a conscious choice. The Galatian church isn't thinking, you know what, I've had it with this Christianity thing, I'm going back to. They think they're going upward, further, deeper in. They think that the path that's been presented to them by those who are troubling them, Paul's title for them, is the path to maturity. And he says, no, it's the path back to slavery. It's the wrong direction. Look at how it plays out in verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. In other words, they had embraced the Jewish calendar and all the things that made up Israel's anticipatory annual practice waiting for Messiah. And so these Jewish men had come in to this non-Jewish church and said, you need to keep the law of Moses. You need to abide by the holidays of the Old Testament. You need to have your men be circumcised. You need to change your diet so that it's kosher. You need to do all these things, and then you will grow into God's people. And what we've already seen is Paul said, you don't need to do those things to become God's people. You are already God's children in Christ. Okay. But the other temptation is not just, are you on the inside or are the outside, but how do you get further in, further and deeper in? How do you grow more? And Paul is going to argue in the weeks to come 
that they also have everything they need for that in the Holy Spirit. But the temptation here underlying this is not just a temptation of calendars or a misreading of the Old Testament or a misunderstanding of what Jesus has done. It's a choice between teachers. It's a choice between leaders. And that's why Paul goes on in the next verses and talks about his relationship with the church in Galatia and the troublers' relationship with the church in Galatia. And this is where I want to focus our time this morning. And as we do so, I know that many of us are in different places. Some of us may be relatively new, merely babies in Christ, and fully aware of the need that we need people around us who can pour into us and feel the vulnerability that I mentioned earlier very, very closely. Others may have been walking with Jesus for a long time. We've had those people in our life. We can identify them by name, and we praise God for them. And now, you know, if you will, we've, uh, we're walking on our own two feet. We're, we're cutting our own steak and eating it, these types of things. So where does this fit for you? I want to remind you that there's a correlation between the path to maturity and maturity itself that the way God has designed the household to work is that those who have grown up in Christ would help those others grow in Christ. In fact, because the goal, as Paul says uh, near the end of the passage, is that, that Christ would be formed in us or that we would become more like Jesus, then there's a direct correlation between teaching and lifestyle, between the path to maturity and maturity itself. In other words, when we ask the question, who are mature teachers, we also lay out the curriculum, not just the instructors. The trajectory, the degree, the final finish line of where we're headed. And so it may be that this is a better time for some of you to reflect this morning on your own path to maturity where you are this morning, as well as the call that you have to be that for the church. The first thing I want you to notice this morning is that maturity in Christ and those that we should entrust ourselves to for our own maturity are marked by a certain relationship with weakness. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, I entreat you to become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Now, at, at a first glance, this seems kind of strange. If Paul was to make a case for why they should stick with Paul, starting by saying, you know that I never intended to come to you, seems like a strange thing to say, doesn't it? What does he say here? He says, the only reason I stopped off in Galatia is because I got sick. That's what he's saying, okay? Now, this is no fluke. Whatever this was, it was such a bad condition that it threatened the possibility of the Galatians receiving him at all. Whatever it was, the illness was so strong, Paul believes it would have made sense for them to reject him out of hand. Why is that the case? Because Galatia is part of the Roman Empire. And much like thinking in the modern world, there is a correlation between power and leadership, between strength and trustworthiness. 
here, Paul begins to preach to Galatia, and he's dealing with some sort of a bodily ailment. Some scholars believe that it's a very vicious form of malaria. Others believe that it's an eye disease because he has that strange sentence in here. He says, you loved me so much, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. But whatever it was, it was a clearly identifiable weakness. Paul was not imperviable, impenetrable, unsubject to weakness. He was acquainted with suffering. And he was nothing to look at. The early church fathers tell us biographically that Paul was short, bow-legged, bald, hook-nosed, and unimpressive in his speech. Now have him keeled over the pulpit in pain as he tries to tell them about the gospel. And you start to understand what we're dealing with here. But Paul was so committed to weakness, it wasn't just that he could lead even when times were hard. He actually chose the path of weakness. When he goes to Corinth, a city that was esteemed for powerful orators and speakers who started and launched movements of thought, he says, I determined when I came among you to restrain the power and authority in my voice, to lay aside the things that you would call wisdom, but instead to take the path of weakness. There's an intention here. But here's what I want to point out to you. The power of Paul's ministry, the impact that it made on the Galatians, the foundation that they now have in Jesus Christ, um, you know, which, which to some degree is not questioned. He says, don't remember what it was like. Look at what he says about it. He says, he says, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. In the midst of the weakness, they recognized the power of God. They saw the truth. How dif dif different, how distant is this from the paternalism of these new people who come in strong and in the position of power and believe that the Galatians have nothing to offer them, but they are the great benefactors. Sometimes we experience this as Americans, don't we? We travel abroad, we encounter the things that we entitle or see as poverty or lack, and we step into relationships as the white savior, as the powerful Americans who can fix things, right? Paternalistically, stepping in. But that's not the way Paul was. His time of ministry was also a time of severe need. And he was okay with that. This is something we have to recognize because the power of God is not in the power of men. Because we have this treasure, Paul says, in earthen vessels. Because we're just weak clay humans, but the glory of the gospel shines forth through the cracks of those broken pots. Okay. We should be wary of those who would seek to lead or, speak to be, or seek to be authoritative in their speech in our life who seem untouched by weakness, who seem to present a posture 
of power. Who shirk off every personal concern. Who seem just impenetrable to the normal sufferings of the rest of us human beings. The way of the world in leadership says that if we want to be successful, we must follow those who are successful, and we define success in these ways, untouched by pain or suffering or weakness, presenting as perfect, without flaw. But you know what we call that in Christianity? We call it hypocrisy. <laughs> we call it putting on a mask and hiding the reality. The truth is, you cannot learn how to receive Jesus from somebody who doesn't seem to need him as well. And so Paul is looking at this other audience and he's saying, look, in my weakest, you understood what was going on. You saw that God was working and I would encourage you that a full acquaintance with your need for Jesus or of your own human limitations or weakness or of the true reality and imprint of suffering is indeed a mark of maturity in Christ. In fact, Paul says one of the wildest things at the end of Galatians. I think that Paul writing this letter was exhausting. I think it just destroyed him emotionally. I think he laid it all on the field and didn't know what would happen next. But I want you to notice what he says in the last second to last verse of Galatians in chapter 6, verse 17. He says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He looks at his own scars, and he says, they look a lot like Jesus' scars. He says, if you want to know that I represent Christ, how about the fact that I also bear in my body the punishment of this world? Never forget that the God that we follow is the God who laid aside power, strength, and entered into a human world, not just to be completely and significantly other, unimpacted by those things, but willingly took on suffering. Jesus hungered, he thirsted, he grieved, he mourned, he suffered, he was betrayed. He was beaten. He was crucified and died. And in that reality was the power. Paul knows that. He knows it personally. He commits his life to being one of those earthen vessels that displays the treasure. He comes to the place in 2 Corinthians where he says, I boast in my weakness. Because in my weakness, the power of God is displayed. Another thing that we see here, where Paul contrasts himself with those who are now inviting the Galatians to follow him, has to do with boundaries. Okay. I'll show you what I mean. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. Now, that's a little bit cryptic. What is Paul talking about? What does he mean that he became like the Galatians? And what does he mean when he invites them now to become as he is? 
I think to understand this, you have to counterbalance it with something he says later about the other teachers. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, they, these other teachers, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out so that you make much of them. See, here was the difference. Paul's ministry was invitational. It brought in, he walked into a Gentile church and lived in the midst of Gentile people in the ways that Gentile lived so that they would know the gospel. But these Jewish teachers came in and they set up a barrier. And they said, we cannot eat with you. In fact, those of you who are Jews, you cannot eat with them anymore. You are now on the outside. And if you want to know God, you must become like us. Now, there's a lot of places, I think, when we read, especially in Galatians, where we can't really relate. As I've said in weeks past, you may never have been tempted towards circumcision or kosher dietary laws or to keep the festivals of the Jews or to go to synagogue. Okay? But this is one that seems incredibly contemporary because ultimately it has to do with holiness. Boundaries are always about holiness, right? And the Pharisees, who seem to be the kind of the driving force behind this Jewish version of Christianity, this Moses model of ministry, their name, the Pharisees, means the separate ones. Their whole life was devoted to keeping themselves unstained by the world around them. And this wasn't just in traditionally, ethically moral ways, like we don't go to strip clubs, but also we don't go into the households of foreigners. We don't invite in or accept invitations to dinner from the Greek down the street. Okay. And the truth is, we often think of holiness in the separate same way. Holiness is to be separate, to be distant from, to be separate from. But I sat in a class and was listening to one of my professors this week and he argued that when we look at Isaiah chapter 6, which you may or may not remember is like Holiness 101. This is where Isaiah encounters God on his throne and the angels declaring what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And he falls down on his face and he says, Woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. Right? That's an encounter with holiness. But he reminded us that this idea that God's presence is so holy that he cannot tolerate sin is not the best way to describe what's happening there. Because God is in the presence of sinful Isaiah before the coal cleanses him. And I'll tell you what, it shattered something in my brain and here's what I realized. That the holiness of God is invasive, not impregnable. We think sometimes, I think of God's presence like a fortress of light. And to step into that light would zzzit, that'd just be the end of us. But do we forget that God walked in the garden of the coolness of the day looking for Adam and Eve who had just sinned against them? Do we forget that the same God who is on the throne being declared holy, holy is the one who commissions the angel to send the coal to cleanse Isaiah's lips? Do we forget that this is the same God who took on flesh and walked through the midst of dirty human life, touched lepers, embraced sinners, 
ate with tax collectors? You see, the truth is, and this is what my professor said, that sin cannot exist in the holiness of God without being changed, either cleansed or consumed. But he suggested that it's the holiness of God that draws him into the place where sin is to do something about it. This is the difference between Paul's ministry and the preachers here. Paul saw boundaries as things to be transversed to bring a message of grace and the gospel. He changed his way of living so that he could explain the way of life to all people. But the Pharisees drew a wall around themselves and said, you're on the outside, we're on the inside. We'd like you to come in, but first change A, B, C, and D. Now notice, he says they made much of them. And that's clearly true. Are these resident Galatians who are troubling this church? No, they're from Jerusalem. They've put on their hiking shoes and marched all the way over there and said, we've heard that you've come to know Jesus, that's great, right? They made much of this church. But their intention, he says, was to close you out so that you would make much of them. And here's where that impenetrable holiness idea leads. Here's where that separation idea leads. It leads to a self-righteousness that feels more righteous the more we condemn others. By saying, you are on the outside, these religious leaders were actually saying, we are on the inside. Right? They want to put you out so that you will make much of them. This was the Pharisee that Jesus warned about, praying in the temple, God, thank you that I'm not like a sinner or a tax collector. And he says, but it's the one who beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner that went away justified. But again, what do we see? That here, Paul is the one to follow because he looks like Jesus. Jesus, who entered into human life, human custom, human conversation, human ways and means to impart the revelation, the good news of life. And this doesn't mean that Paul went to the pagan temples with these and worshipped at the altars of their idols. Of course not. But he knew that these other boundaries that we draw, remember what we talked about last week, these other ways of weighing status, it says if you're going to be a part of our association, you must also be middle class. You must also share our skin color or at the very least our Western culture. Right? All of those boundaries are still things that we struggle with. Elementary principles of the world. But Paul, he crossed every one to bring the message of Jesus Christ. Third, Paul paints his relationship as being the one who bears the primary cost and effort. Now, I just want you to notice before we look at this closer, just the affection that Paul has for the Galatians. And I want you to notice that as he traces their relationship, it gets more and more intimate. So notice as he starts here in verse 12, he says, Brothers, I entreat you to become as I am 
The word there is, is siblings. It's brothers and sisters. It's just kind of a mouthful to say. But the first way that he identifies with these people is family. But then notice, a little bit further down, verse 19, my little children. He starts with brothers and sisters, and now he takes on the parental role, and not just like parent and adult child, but my little children, my babies. It's very intimate. And then he pushes even further, and notice what it says at the end here of verse 19. For whom I again am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed you. That's not even like nursing mother. That's mother gestating. That's the nine months before the birth. That's the, the pregnancy is what he's talking about here. Can we think of anything else that is more intimate in terms of human relationships? That you would carry your child in your body, nourishing it with your own blood? But also, as he does this, as he explains this, what we see is that Paul, like a good parent, endures the cost and the sacrifice of the relationship. Listen, I have five children of varying ages, attitudes, and on any given day, behavior. But I have never sat them down and said, all right, here are the things that you must do so that I will be your parent. I've never gone, look, this distribution isn't really fair because I do all the work, I make all the money, and then you eat all my food. Why? Because that's how the relationship is designed to work. The relationship is to work where I work for them and for their sake out of love and for their formation. And they have never paid me tuition. Paul was the same way. Here, look at what he says at the end there, verse 11. He says, I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Paul is not laying it on thick. Extensive effort, time, presence. He imparted to these people of another country, miles and miles away from their home. And it was a labor of love. He tended to them, he nurtured them, he taught them for their sake. Listen, I love teaching the Bible and I've been doing it for, for just about 14 years now. And when I started, that's all there really was to drive and motivate me to open the Bible and share it with other people was a love for teaching the Bible. And then one day I was reading in the Gospel of Mark and it said that Jesus looked out upon the multitudes and saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them, so he taught them. And I gotta be honest, that wrecked me for quite a while. Loving the ministry of the word and loving those you minister the word to are not the same thing. But for Paul and for Jesus, they were the same thing. They flowed from a heart of love like a parent for a child. Not because someday this kid will grow up and you know, pay for my retirement or be able to work the farm or pay me back. No, it's, it's a one directional relationship. Paul bore the sacrifice for the relationship. But we don't see that in the competition. That's one of the things he's trying to point out. 
Here these people show up after the work is done and lay all these burdens on you and offer no help to fix it and you revere them because they treat you as without worth. You can see this again in 2 Corinthians. Paul walked through a similar situation. And the truth is, we've all seen that, haven't we, in human life? Where sometimes the most nurturing and caring and loving are set aside for those who just abuse and demand and squeeze the life out of those they supposedly are caring for. But leadership, according to scripture, is sacrificial. This is what Paul exhorts husbands. Love your wives as you lead them as Christ loved the church, laying down your life for them, willingly sacrificing for them. That's how Paul was. This is how he says it to the Philippians. Think of this language. He says, I have been poured out as a drink offering for you. All that he is emptied out on the floor for them. And again, if our goal is to become like Christ, is there any greater definition of self-sacrifice and love? Wouldn't we expect that those who are the most like Jesus are the most giving and the most sacrificial? Wouldn't you expect that if you want to become like Jesus, you need to spend time with people who look like Jesus? Let's look at just one last one here. He says in verse 19, My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until what? Until Christ is formed in you. Paul's desire, Paul's metric is I want you to be like Jesus. Now, we need to be careful here because Paul has no problem saying follow me as I follow Christ. He has no problem in saying, I will be your example and you can walk in my footsteps as I walk in the footsteps of Jesus. So it would be difficult for us to say that becoming more like Paul is a bad thing. But it's not the end goal. And for these troublers, what they were interested in is become like us. Walk like us, talk like us, look like us. Forsake even the most, you know, uh, tertiary of cultural things and take on our culture instead. The end game for these others is to create men and women in their own image. Again, as a multiple manifestation of their goodness and righteousness. But for Paul, he labors that they would become like Christ. And I know he's committed to it because this is what he says in Galatians 1. He says, the gospel is so real, so true, so important. If anyone, an angel in heaven, or even me, myself, preach you another gospel, let him be accursed. He's willing to say with confidence, don't follow me if I lead away from Jesus.
Listen. Maybe more than in the ancient world where Paul is writing to a couple hundred people of, you know, a, a backwoods religion that's not very well known, let alone understood. Maybe more than a world where there is no MTV, there is no social media, there is no public presence of the church, there is no Instagram followers. Maybe more than ever we need to be aware of the cult of celebrity and how it can twist Christian discipleship. But Paul's heart is that they would come, become closer to Jesus, that they would grow into his image. What Paul does, what he tries to do here, it's like the paddles when the heartbeat flatlines. Galatians is shock therapy. It's screaming to get their attention. And here he does it by laying bare his heart in a tremendously vulnerable way. And by the way, this is his method in ministry. Paul the apostle doesn't come in, you know, with rod in hand and beat people into submission. He comes in on his knees with his heart laid out before those who hurt him and admonishes and begs and weeps that they would turn from their sin. Leadership is vulnerable when it's done in Christ. Leadership is boundary crossing for the sake of those who do not yet know. True fathers and mothers in Christ bear the cost of discipleship and sacrifice out of love. And their heart of hearts, their center and their aspiration is to not make people in their image, but to see Christ be greater formed in them. And the truth is, the church in America, our church here in Seattle, we need this reality more than ever. We need these mothers and fathers more than ever. Because right now, we live in a day and age where the church is formed by other powers, other leaderships, other structures, other instructors, other truths, and we're starting to taste and see where those things lead that we should have known all along. Let's pray. Father, it is one of the amazing realities of how you've designed human community that we become like those we follow. That the idea of an example or of a model it really works. And it is also true, Lord, that with great leadership, we can go to places we wouldn't have gone on our own. But I pray, Lord, that that would make us careful in the types of leaders and instructors and parental figures that we choose.
I pray that it would make us committed in the types of leaders, instructors, and parental figures that we become. God, you have designed your faith to work in the midst of and through or in partnership with human beings. And I just want to testify, Lord, and thank you this morning for the men and women in Christ who have operated as my example, who have poured into me, who have sacrificed their time and energy, who have reached across boundaries and differences and distinctions to make your truth known. like Paul did, who were called like Paul was, followed Christ so closely as Paul did. And I pray that you would raise up in our church mothers and fathers who know that they are called to this work. And I pray that those of us who are growing, who need to grow, that we would look for the help of our heavenly family. these things in Jesus' name, and we commit ourselves to becoming more like him, because he became like us.